The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey Ben, how's it going? It's going ducky. How are you doing? Going pretty well. It's another episode of the Cinematography Podcast, and I'm very pleased to say that we have cinematographer Xavier Dolians on the uh, the show today. That's uh, going to be a lot of fun. Awesome. Awesome. But first up, we should dive right into our close focus. What's going on in the entertainment world? Well, it was something that we wanted to talk about last week, but the strike looming seemed like uh, more pressing for our industry immediately. And it was because now we're in the strike, but yeah. uh, it's shows uh, are being shut down. All kinds of stuff's happening. Yeah. And I have it on uh, pretty good authority that we're looking at probably being on strike until September. And you were sharing with me the very prevalent conspiracy theory that 100 days allows the studios to cancel people's deals due to force majeure. So uh, that somewhat comports with what this person was telling me was that the studios and networks kind of wanted it a little bit because then they could clear the books. But we're not going to talk about that. What no. we're going to talk about is deep fake music. And I think that it's deep fake Drake. Deep fake Drake in particular, a song called Heart on My Sleeve that was made by I don't believe the name of the artist has been released yet. Who, who it was actually a TikToker made. who took the who took the credit. So so. Basically, they took Drake and The Weeknd and they made a song called Heart on My Sleeve. Now, uh, I'm not an expert in either Drake or The Weeknd, but to my ear, Drake sounds pretty awesome. Sounds a lot like Drake. The Weeknd, less so, but who cares? Uh, <laughs> as far as I can tell, it's a thoroughly uh, cromulent Drake song that if I heard somebody listening to it, like the mix, the production of it, it all sounds a lot like Drake. Maybe somebody who is a bigger Drake fan than me, which is to say a Drake fan at all, could tell me uh, <laughs> the difference. Yeah. 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 Where, where it is failing to be Drake-like, but it sounds a lot like that. It's the kind of thing where, you know, I, I'm one step removed from the world of people who listen to that music and and, uh, and it's pretty convincing. And what's interesting to me about this is we see it time and again. The stuff that hits all of the all of the arts <laughs> usually starts with music and eventually finds its way to film. So, you know, in the early 2000s, you had Napster that within about 10 years, nine years was BitTorrent for films and videos. And Napster and file sharing kind of rendered the music industry, let's say, less profitable than it had been. And, you know, if you're a musician and your album sales aren't the thing that's driving your finances, you can still tour. But, you know, obviously films don't work the same way. And when BitTorrent came through and, you know, stuff like Pirate Bay and stuff like that came through for films, it kind of wiped out the industry for a while. And it wasn't really until streaming got a strong foothold that it came back. So it's interesting to look at this and say, OK, we can't convincingly deep fake an entire, you know, George Clooney movie where George Clooney sat at home and someone made a George Clooney movie without George Clooney's participation. How far away are we from that, Ilya? What do you think? I still think we're years away from that sort of thing. I, I couldn't help but feel like, as I was listening to the Drake song, that it's sort of like a more specific Vocaloid. If you remember Vocaloids, they're on version six of Vocaloid now, which is a, uh, 
uses AI technology to generate highly expressive singing voices that people yeah. can then go into software and make them say and sing whatever you would want. So I, I basically feel like it was a Vocaloid treatment on on Drake. And well, it, uh, and it is smart to take somebody who's heavily auto-tuned to begin with and agreed. deepfake them because agreed you're going to lose all of the electronic imperfections and artifacts in the fact that that sound is baked into how they sing anyway. So I do think... So you're in trouble, T-Pain. They're coming for you next. (laughs) Uh, And the lot. You know, it's really become a style in the last decade or so of the uh, heavy-duty auto-tune and different sort of uh, vocal effects. And it almost feels like a a genre into itself. But what I was going to say is that vocaloids did not replace singers. I don't think that deep fake Drake and other copycats that are sure to, to pop up now are going to replace pop music. But I think it's just something that's going to end up being a thing and being its own thing, kind of in the way that like social media celebrities are social media celebrities, but aren't necessarily yeah, influencers. Yeah, they're not necessarily <laughs> celebrities in their own right. Yeah. I think that there's people out there and a lot of them really there's a lot of people out there who don't take responsibility for the sort of IP infringing work that they're doing out there. I remember the Green Day album that got a huge release which was the Dean Gray album which was all remixed uh, completely unauthorized and you know uh, put for free up on the web and you know it was done so professionally that a lot of people were like well is it actually Green Day or someone else doing this that's famous and just wants to put it out there so people could hear it you know we could start to see something like that professionals could start using it as just another creative outlet but it's all early days I'm not sure where this is going to go I'm not sure what it's going to be well I mean it, it really is like the big fight that is about to happen no matter what we do is copyright like copyright on AI generated art, because if somebody vocally trained to sound like Drake and then recorded a song like this and they just worked really hard at it, it wasn't a deep fake. It was somebody actually doing it with their voice. And of which there's been so many artists over the years that just sound like sound alikes of another band. It's, I mean, it's just, yeah. 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 But like, if you do that, that's not a copyright violation in any way. Unless you steal, Um, unless you steal like, you know, the chord progression and uh, the lyrics and think, yeah, yeah. if you steal their song. I mean, like we just had a big court case with Ed Sheeran over possibly plagiarizing a Marvin Gaye song, but plagiarism is a different thing than sounding like somebody, you know, there, there are plenty of singers who sound like other singers. So how different is that if you use a computer to generate somebody now? I mean, in this case, it was released as a Drake track. If uh, the TikToker had just released it as a song and didn't say it was Drake, no harm, no foul, right? But we're looking at, do you have a copyright on the sound of your voice? Could you take, you know, you and I have been doing this podcast now since, what, 2013? Oh, I'm sure that there's enough recording of you and I that an AI yeah. could make us say any anything, you know. Literally anything, anything that it wanted us to say. And it would sound exactly like us. And one of the interesting things, and I heard about this story, by the way, on a great podcast the New York Times does called Hard Fork, which is all about tech. And they were talking about Grimes, the singer. Uh, and she, Former Mrs. Elon Musk and, yeah. uh, and pop singer. Yeah, uh, exactly. Well, I, I guess she has the money to be this magnanimous. But she basically said to her fan base, hey, use my voice, deep fake, whatever you want. You just have to split the profits with me. And, you know, I feel like any artist has the absolute right to do that. And on Hard Fork, they were saying, like, how cool would it be if a Grimes fan wrote a Grimes song, made it a hit, and then in concert, she started performing it. Wow. Yeah. It could happen. It could absolutely happen. 
I'm that, still... that may be where, where we're headed. But let's let's extrapolate this just a little bit. Let's say this generative AI, you know, entertainment. Let's say we move into the movie realm really quickly. Let's say you know it blows everyone's expectations. And it's, it's not just Will Smith eating pasta or a, a fake yeah. beer commercial. Yeah. Let, let's say uh, the next, uh, you know, forget the really expensive Lord of the Rings, uh, you know, Amazon series. The next version of that is entirely AI generated. So there's no, there's no actors. There's no nothing. What does that do to the entire economy that's based around the film industry? I would say the entire economy, if that just happens and it's beyond good enough and now you can have your custom content, your custom entertainment, your custom feature films of whatever you want and everyone can make it with a prompt or a studio makes it with a, with prompts and there are no people anymore because we're talking about this all these digital worlds and digital creations and you can now have Star Wars 17 or whatever it is. The film schools go away. The you know the right the writers go away. Everybody yeah. goes away. I I'm going to argue that that is not going to happen. Certainly not in our lifetimes. But you will see the rise of this other thing show up that occupies its own space. And for some people, maybe that will be good enough. But I think for the vast majority, I mean, it'll be entertaining yeah. in and of itself. It'll you know it'll I mean, be a novelty. Like, it'll be a novelty. It's, it's, it'll be. Yeah. It's hard to make the comparison, but it's like the rise of video games, which you know, like early video games by today's standards were extremely primitive. And Dude, now they're. Did you play Pong for six hours tonight? <laughs> But, you but know, now, people but, did. But now they're, <laughs> I played uh, Minecraft with my son for about four hours today. And, you know, I mean, like video games are pretty impressive, like what you can do with them, but they haven't replaced movies or television because it's just a different thing. And I feel like that's the case here where like I still go back to Corridor Digital's fake anime where they filmed live action and made mm. it look like Vampire Hunter D in post using AI. That's a cool use of AI. But it's still driven by human performances and human writing. And, you know, yeah, could chat GPT ever replace a screenwriter? This is my feeling about all of those things. Think about like in the 1980s, studio movies got really slick and overproduced. And then what happened at the end of the 80s? The independent film movement swept in with low tech, small personal stories that were meaningful and touching in a way that giant studio movies never were. And the same thing happened a couple years later in music where all these overproduced things kind of gave way to grunge. And I feel like that's the churn that happens is we get overproduced and overproduced and overproduced. And then some jamoke with, you know, $20 worth of equipment comes in and outdoes everyone because the storytelling is better and more interesting and fresh. And the thing about AI is it is always derivative and most storytelling is derivative. So what are you going to do about that? But it's you're not ever going to do something that's never been done before using AI. That's the, the hang up of it. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it is so fresh and delightful when you do see something that you feel like you've never seen before. I, I really felt that way about everything everywhere. I mean, I, I felt like, yeah, I felt like that felt very fresh and it was only similar enough that uh, I understood what was going on. But yeah, that like. Well, and it felt kind of, uh, and I don't mean this in a negative way at all, but it felt a little low tech. It felt a little. Absolutely. Uh, you could Intentionally see Intentionally so. Yeah, that's the kind of surrealism that people like them or Michel Gondry or Wes Anderson tongues. Yeah. Yeah. They do kind of an interesting absurdism surrealism where it feels very real and grounded. And yeah, you're using digital tools. You're going to use digital tools for all this stuff. And I say you're also going to be using AI tools probably moving forward because they're just going to be built into the digital tools you're using. I'm already using AI tools in everything. 
but that doesn't mean AI is doing the work. There's still someone driving it. And I would argue to this day, that, God, there's a project that I'm talking about doing that I, I wish I could explain what it was here, but I can't because I'm you know basically under an NDA. The usual, uh, yeah. But it's something that uses AI, but there's no way to do it without the human touch. And yeah. uh, I don't think AI ever replaces it. That being said, if I was 16 today, I probably would be messing around deep fake and making songs here's what i want instead of drake i want someone to make like a beatles cover of smells like teen spirit i think that there's all kinds of incredible acoustic sounding stuff that hasn't been created yet using ai but probably that that future is, is coming to us uh, before you know it so yeah I, that'll be fun actually i think that'll be kind of cool when it's like hey let's get a you know a frank sinatra rap album let's do music that couldn't have existed yeah yeah, agreed. Well, uh, Ben, I think it's time that we get to the interview with Xavier Dolians. Of course, a uh, very talented cinematographer. He's currently, you can currently see his work on uh, Mrs. Davis, which is, oh man, we get into it. I'm going to give it away right now. So let's go straight to the interview with Xavier. Excellent. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. I'm joined now by cinematographer Xavier Doleans. Uh, thank you so much for being on the Cinematography Podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for welcoming me. Xavier, you know, we'll get into your whole story in a minute, but we got to talk about Mrs. Davis. Mrs. Davis is this new Peacock series, which uh, I know that you were involved in some of the episodes shooting in Spain. Can you tell me a little bit how you came to this project? I know you've been working in France for a long time now and, and through Europe. Uh, how did Mrs. Davis come to be? Yeah, actually, I'm, I was working mainly in France and Europe, and I connected with an agent at the festival Camera Image, actually in Poland in 2021, because... Uh, Wait was... a second. You were at Camera Image in 2021? Yeah. Uh, everyone I know who went to Camera Image in 2021 and 2022, everyone came back with COVID. Did you also get COVID? No, no. I already, oh, I already had COVID before, and I had COVID after, <laughs> but not at, not at the festival itself. Yeah. Wow. All right. Good, good, good for you, because uh, for those who are listening to the show who don't know Camera Image... It is a very crowded affair, usually very, very crowded. Lots of people all packing into a place. And of course, 2021, like I, I didn't think the festival would necessarily happen, but of course it did. And congratulations on escaping unharmed. Uh, there were so many people there who, uh, yeah. who, who didn't make it that, yeah, that and way. That, so. that was also a good year, actually, because less people in 2021. And I met uh, WPA, this agency, and I started to work with them. And I moved to the U.S. in 2022. I did a couple of interviews and I went back to France and then I did also interviews again for different shows and one came beginning of September 2022. It was Mrs. Davis and they were looking for a DOP to work in Spain. So I did that interview on a Friday and actually they said to me, yes, you have to be in Spain on a Monday. So for 10, Whoa, for 10 so weeks. no prep. You went from you're hired to start shooting. No, actually it was a five, five weeks of prep. And five weeks okay, of good. shooting, but I had to move for Spain. I mean, the, on the next Monday for ten weeks. So wow! And that was a, a wonderful experience. I met the director Alicia Jones. Uh, she directed episode three, four, and six. Six was in the U.S. in Los Angeles, actually, and three and four were mainly shot in Spain. So we started to to learn to know each other, you know, during the prep, which is kind of strange, but you are in the prep already doing the, the scouting and we were learning to, to know each other at that point. And, and we started to, to find our rhythm of work together. We were really connected together to understand the show, the rhythm, the look and everything. We had a lot of talks around that. 
So episode five hasn't uh, debuted yet in the U.S., but I've watched three and four. Yeah. And I'm curious, is much of the part that took place in Spain, the Vatican, was like the Vatican faked in Spain? What portions of the, of uh, was it the Excalibur battle? Which, uh, which uh, stuff uh, from the episodes were, I mean, it seems like probably most of it was there, but uh, was there anything yeah. in particular that yeah. you could- Yeah, actually uh, everything happening from the train, there is a sequence in the train. So from the train to England, to the, the end of the Vatican, so the end of episode four, everything is shot in Spain. So we shot uh, Spain for Scotland, and we also shot the Barcelona in Barcelona for doing, I mean, mostly the Vatican and all the Italian places. And we also shot all the, everything happening in jail, you know, in episode four. So this is a very long sequence. So we shot everything also in Spain. So that, that's most of it. Well, it's all gorgeous. It's all absolutely beautiful. So it doesn't surprise me that that Spain could stand in for these locations. Spain is very, you know, it has so many different looks and you guys did such a good job in creating all of, uh, you know, the the production design is is all at the the highest level. It's a well-budgeted American television series. What was it like? Was it all European crew, or were there uh, were there besides the director? Was it was it mostly locals who were there? Or was it more of an American style or a European style production? I know there are some very basic differences, even just in the way things are slated and yeah. uh, the hours that American productions are expected to work are a little bit different than yeah. uh, some European productions. Tell tell me about the difference of, of working on Mrs. Davis, or was it not different at all? Was it like you that, know Euro that's, style? That's a good question, actually, because for me it was just in the middle between the U.S. way of working and the Europe and we are working. Actually, a lot of head of department were uh, from the US, so costume designer, production designer. I had one camera operator from the US. And the rest of the crew, and so and the directors, uh, the other DP, I remember one AC also for the other crew. So basically a few head of department and the rest of it were Spanish people. Spanish people very used to work on US productions. So we were organized the US way with the rigging crew doing only the rigging, the black and everything. The grip crew doing camera support, you know, only camera support. So basically crane, dolly and running and all those things. And the camera department was organized away. I mean, this is organized in Europe, but also in, in the US, no big difference around that. But the main difference for me was to work with the European crew, but in the US way. So we were working that way in terms of hours, we were working in the limitation of the European regulation rules, you know, so we were doing mostly 10 hours, something like that, between 8 to 10 hours, yeah. It's it's very civilized. And every time I, I speak with a uh, cinematographer based in France, I, I want to bring this up because I, I feel like there's a, a thought and philosophy in the U.S. that it's impossible to work an eight hour day and actually get your productions made. Everyone wants to try to pack more in. But I think France is the perfect example that it is not only possible, that it's preferable. People want to, to work this number of hours and you absolutely can do it and you can do it successfully. When you work in this US style, a 10 hour day is, is, is a bit longer, but uh, not nearly as long as I think what American crews are usually yeah. used to working. Yeah. How is it for you making the adjustment? Is it is it not such a bad adjustment? Is it, uh, I mean, do, you, do, you, do you want to tell everyone we're doing it wrong? You should be doing it a different way. <laughs> no, I mean, in theory, I mean, yeah, we know how to do that in France for eight hours a day, but this is not so obvious because the thing is, the main difference for me is the size of the crew. And actually mm. when you have eight hours and you are used to a French crew, this is easy to, to do a fast move. But mm. when you have a US crew with all the people involved, you know, and you are walking this way, 
there is a latency in the way you are moving, you know? So mm. probably, I mean, this is not very easy to make the same thing in eight hours day with a US code. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So there's so much more logistics. There's so many more people and yeah. trucks and yeah. things. It's yeah. just, yeah, yes. it, it takes time to move all that. Yeah. And for sure. also you have time for production design, costume design, and you have some actors that are working SAG. Mm. So yeah. you have different regulation for that. And you, in the term of number of hours, I mean, I was comfortable working 10 hours. This is probably the good in between, you know? Between, yes, be, yeah, yeah, be, between the, the time you have to rest and and the time you have on set to work. Yeah, but um, we had to push a lot in terms of number of shots in the day because we were shooting in mostly from October to end of November. So at the end oh, of yeah. November, oh, yeah. the day we are very short, especially for Iscali Battle. And actually, you can feel it when you watch the show, you, different moments. And that's funny because, yeah, we were shooting in Figueras, north of Spain, and at that the weather and... Uh, Everything, the atmosphere is more like Scotland, but you, but this is not so cold and this is not so rainy. So this is a good mm. place to shoot all those European venues. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know that the time of year especially can be unpredictable. And uh, you know from being at Camera Image in uh, Poland in November that the weather can be uh, uncooperative sometimes. And I will tell you that you guys did a great job of matching. And of course, all of your interiors are, are perfect, but you never know what's going to happen. You know, this show is really interesting, too. When you when you were first handed the script, were you of the mindset that you wanted to work, uh, you know, American production, it, it didn't matter what it was? Or were you really being selective? Because this is a very interesting project in that it's equating technology and religion. Yeah. And it's Really, I feel like the show is almost about devotion and about blind faith, no matter what that is, to yeah. technology or to someone's uh, religious beliefs. What did you think of this uh, when, when you first read it? And was this uh, what you were hoping to work on? Oh, that's funny, because when I first read it, actually, I was like, what is this show? You know, I was not understanding what a thing, you know, and I did the interview yeah. like that. I did the interview with everybody, the directors, producer, uh, Joe, uh, the other DP and uh, that's easy to understand what's happening in every sequence, but you, you don't have the big picture of what's happening on the eight episodes. And when you first read it, actually, you can tell that this is very deep. And the dialogue itself is deep, but everything written in between, because Damon Lindelof and Tara Hernandez, they are writing a lot of things, small things, giving some indication of what the, the character is thinking or what the camera move can be or... But during funny thing, this is funny joke in the script itself. Yes. And that, that's so yes. funny and so rich, actually, that I was really surprised. And, and I was also very lucky to be in that show, you know? <laughs> yeah, it, there are all these little jokes in there. It, the, the whole thing feels like a broad comedy. It feels very much like a comedy. And uh, there are some characters and bits that are over the top. And I think it's in one of the episodes that you shot, too, that there's this Australian sort of strike force team leader yeah. of he calls his people ninjas that at one point they're going to jump out of an airplane and he says might me and it's like it's just it's not it, I mean he's already an over-the-top character and I don't think I'm really giving anything away here but might me it took me for a second because then he shoved a spoon in his mouth and I can only imagine it was Vegemite or Marmite or something before he jumped out of the plane like to give him strength and it's just such like it's you don't think that this could possibly be real or what the world is because some of the world feels very real yeah. feels like it's being played seriously 
And then by the time you've got these uh, reveals, these different reveals that things that you thought were one way are not, it's complex. It's complex. And I tell you, I think there's some people who may not get to episode four where finally some things start understanding because I think it's it's just a lot. There's so much that's being thrown at you. Yeah. But wonderful work. And I'm so glad that you you came to this project because it really has a uh, spectacular, glossy, very, you know, Hollywood, high budget, high budget look to it. And Talk a little bit about continuing this sort of like very, very slick look with moves. There's all I noticed like, you know, the ambulance driving away and you've got these moves where like, you know, you're booming up over the ambulance and then coming back down. There's a lot of production that doesn't have to happen. But you guys bothered to set up these shots to, to really have a, an intention behind your visuals. Talk a little bit about how you collaborated with uh, your team or the other DPs to, to continue the look through your episodes. Yeah, first of all, we, we had a talk with Joe Anderson and, and Joe selected very, very strong lenses called Caldwell Chameleon, you know. Uh, uh, yes, the chameleon, the Caldwell Chameleon lenses are, are gorgeous yeah, anamorphic lenses. They Absolutely, are gorgeous yeah. and they were covering uh, Super 35, so it's going to be a bit technical, but we used them just to have a 4K digital negative, which means that we were using the far end of the circle, you know. So we had a mm. kind of vignetting, strong look. Uh, Joe also selected a very strong lookup table at first, and then he changed a little bit during the, the post-production because of HDR, and he had to to redo the look in HDR, so he changed a little bit. But that look, those lenses, you set one thing. I mean, technically speaking, this is one thing. And then we talk a lot about framing in in two four, you know, because mm. we they really wanted to do that. And wide they, screen, yeah, absolutely. yeah, yeah. They, they wanted to have widescreen framing. And then we talked a lot about movement and how it can be different depending on the sequence you are working on and also the director. So we, we talked a lot about the look. And then after this talking, actually, I never talked again with him. We were checking delis, but we were working with our director, respectively. Yeah, she likes to be able to use the, the crane and the moves and even you can have those very subtle moves. And sometimes this is done with the diopters because we are very close, you know. And Alicia mm. is a big fan of that. We were working with a, a Super Techno 22, small mm. enough to move it very quickly and to improvise some shots, you know, on the flow. So that, that was very interesting to, to be able to work that way. And it's a nice, it's a nice toy to have, uh, you know, standing by. Yeah, sure. that, that's a small one. Actually, we had also the big one, the Scorpio 45, which was really big and useful to walk around the sword in episode three. But we also used the, the 22, which is the smallest one and a telescopic one. So that was, that was interesting to be able to make some little push, little pull and little up and down. And I think we use it more and more during the show, you know what I mean? We, we are getting used to it. And we did a shot list with Alicia. In every weekend, we were working together. And the, the shot list was very precise. And during the day, we were adding some shots, you know, or deleting some shots. But she was she was very precise in the way she, she wanted to work. And also, she was very aware of very subtle things happening in the script itself. And the camera work was here to just enhance that or to push a little bit some words. And we used also, I'm a big fan of using the lens baby. Mm, of course. Yeah, yeah. I've no I noticed some moments that seemed like extreme close-ups and very soft fall-off, but it seemed unnatural from a diopter. I'm assuming that must have been lens baby then. I didn't even think of that. Yeah, so. yeah. We are, and also for this funny effect of the sword, you know, in episode three, after the mm -hmm. lightning on the sword, 
There is oh, day, yeah. daytime sequence and he's opening, he's opening his eyes and you can see the bokeh. The bokeh is a little sword. We did that with the lens baby, you know, the one that where you can change the iris. And I, I, I had a company in Spain, they, they cut the, the shape of the iris to a sword, you know, to match the sword. Yeah, and yeah. we did this bokeh effect for him waking up. For our audience who isn't aware, LensBaby is a very affordable, almost a consumer toy-like lens, but has been adopted and adapted and turned into a professional tool with a professional cinema lens mount. And Xavier is talking about this custom iris. This custom iris is essentially you can make almost any shape you want and place it inside of that to then create the out-of-focus area of your scene to, to take on that shape. And I saw all that happen, but I, I didn't even, it didn't even register in my mind. I just assumed now that's a, that was a visual effect or something done in post and not that it was happening in, in camera, in the lens. And it's, it's gorgeous. It's a wonderful tool to be able to have there and, and very unusual. Not, not a lot of people know about the lens baby and not a lot of people uh, get into that. I, I do want to mention though, I think that it's really inspired use, actually, of the Caldwell lenses. You know, my company, Hot Rod Cameras, sells Caldwell lenses. So we're a, an early fan. And I, I know Brian Caldwell many years, the, the creator of those lenses. And I want to say the latest season of Mandalorian and a few other things are, are using those lenses. But it, was this the first time you ever worked with them? Is this? I mean, they're very compact anamorphic lenses with very uh, distinct flares and, and fall off characteristics. What was your thought of these lenses? And if you had never worked with them before, what, what was your opinion? Actually, I'm a big anamorphic guy, you know, so when Joe told me, oh, we are going to use the Caldwell, uh, actually, he told me I'm using the Caldwell right now. And I was watching dailies and his dailies. And I was like, oh, wow, I can see this very powerful look, you know, and and we have all the characteristic of the of the old anamorphic. And this is something that I like. I have to say I'm a big fan of that. So I shot a lot with Atlas Orion previously. And uh, when I saw the, the Caldwell Chameleon on the dailies, I was like, okay, I see, I see, and this is going to be nice. So, and that was the case, actually. So you start to learn which lens you, you like the most, you know, because some lens were too, maybe on the wide angle, this is sometimes a bit too much for me, but I was following the flow of what Joe did on previous episode also, you know, and uh, they are very lightweight and compact and for anamorphic lenses, and they are really beautiful on skin, you know. They are not resolving so much, but this is what we like, actually. We are happy that they are capable of this softness. So, yeah, I, and the flares, the blue flare, remind me the, the Panavision flare in a way, you know, also. Yeah, uh, I think that they're going to find more and more people, more and more shows using them as they, they get out there into the world. I think they're lovely. So tell me then, tell me a little bit about yourself. Now, beyond Mrs. Davis, I, I know that you've been shooting for a long time and you really do a lot of different types of work in, in France. Uh, you've done uh, commercials and music videos and even some live events like fashion and concerts and stuff. Uh, is there a type of a project you, you most like to work on? Is there a direction that, that you're going since you've kind of conquered all these different areas? Yeah, I really like to work on narrative, actually. This is my main job, and this is what I like the most for two reasons. Because I like to tell stories, and I like to be able to create a look that can change following the rhythm of the story. So I like doing features and series. Recently, I shot a feature film. It's going to be released in June in France. This is a biopic about a French female soccer player. And uh, also series, actually series in France right now. Uh, this is like in the US, you can have a lot more money than doing a feature. <laughs> so, yeah, yes, that's and, true. And yeah, also the, many more hours. And yeah. many more hours to tell a story. And this is yeah. a point, you know, because in France, for example, I shot a, a TV series called Germinal. And Germinal is a, 
this is a book from Emile Zola, from uh, telling a story. It's a big hit. It's yeah. a big hit. Yeah, that, that's, yeah. A, that's a book from the end of the 19th century, but this is a classic in the French literature. And, we, and that's a big one. That's 700 pages. And actually, several adaptations were made in, term of, in, in form of movies. But when we started to make the adaptation for, for series, we realized actually that Emile Zola, he wrote this book in sequence, so in, a, in newspaper. First, it was released in a bit in newspaper, and then they, they stitched together the different parts, and they, they did a book. So we realized actually that was the first idea of a series, you know. And now the series, they are giving you this opportunity to tell a story in a very long way. So when you have 700 to 1,000 pages in a book, actually, this is probably a good, good idea to make it a series from it. Yeah. Uh, so, well, you prefer to work in narrative. You're trying to move more into a, a narrative direction, whether it be television or, or feature. Uh, when did you get the bug? When when did you decide that cinematographer was, uh, you know, director of photography was a career that you could do, that this is something that, that you really wanted to do? Yeah, that happened very early. Actually, I was first fascinated by, by um, special effects. So on set effects. When I was like 14, you know, I was watching a TV show called FX, Special Effects, a guy. Yeah. You remember uh -huh. that show? Of course. Yeah. yeah. And it was a guy from Hollywood Special Effects was helping the police, you know, with uh, a lot right. of fancy <laughs> tools and, and gadgets. So I was like... Very realistic. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The world of special effects and, and law enforcement coming together to fight crime. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It yeah. was F slash X. I, re I remember. Yeah. Very, very well. Yeah. Yeah. So I realized watching this show that, uh, oh, okay, special effects. This is something. This, this can be a job, you know. So I connected with a guy in Paris. He was doing special effects. And he told me, you, you should try to go also on set. So I've been on set. I did a, a training. I was trainee assistant director for a small short film. And then I realized, okay, I, I really like set. I want to go on set. So I moved to Paris, started to work on a few films uh, and shorts and, and short format. And I, I very quickly felt in love with the job of DOP, actually, because I think I was fascinated by the technical tool at the service of the artistic POV, point of view of the DOP or the story. And I probably that was the, the same balance for special effects. You know, those tools and those gadgets at the service of a story or an image or doing something in the real world. So, so I quickly, very quickly realized that. And I did probably two years of working as, a, as an assistant director in Paris. And when I was 20, I moved to a school called Louis Lumière, which is a very famous school for cinematographers in France. And I did not the long one, but I did a short version of it, a professional training around 35 millimeter. And then I was like, OK, I know that this is something I want to do. That was 20 years ago. So still the training where I'm 35 millimeter. Yeah. The, the thing about this career is that if you really want to be good, the education kind of never ends. You you start, you know, maybe to 20 years. It is There's so many people who they find their way and it just continues and continues and con it always continues. And yeah. the, the best, the people I know who are always at the best, at the top of the game, they keep learning about all new techniques and all yeah. kinds of things. So it doesn't surprise me at all that uh, you've come along so quickly, but you also keep learning new things as you, as you go through this, which yeah, is great. I, yeah. And that was my way to learn. And as you said, this is something that I did. I mean, I did this training for three months and then I did another training about um, 3D stereoscopic. Mm, yeah, that was very big for a while. I did a training for high speed cinematography for f using Phantom, you know, camera. I did a um, training in, in the US actually in, uh, 
in Global Cinematograph Institute at the time doing like... Very uh, famous. Yeah, yeah, I remember them. Yeah, yeah, Lighting workshop, you know, with all those famous DP. And I did another training about electrical to have my electrical clearance in in France also. I did, you know, those kind of workshop and things. And this is kind of a lifestyle. You have to educate yourself probably every morning, you know, being connected to every newsletter. And newsletter in terms of technology, but also in terms of developing yourself, being better, being uh, paying attention to what you eat, how you sleep, and be ready for the next round, you know, again and again. So this is becoming a lifestyle to be in touch with all the tech info. Yeah, it's really interesting. Some people have the discipline to really do that and to always, as I say, keep your tools sharp to be ready for to, to be ready for anything. Other people I know, they kind of phone it in, they do okay. And then there are some people who show up one day and then the world passes them by because they don't stay healthy, they don't keep up to date on information, they don't uh, education. And it's interesting. I think everyone kind of goes through different phases at different points in their life. But yes, if you can dedicate yourself, you're always going to be better prepared and uh, doing better work than the people who are too lazy to, to dedicate that all of the other stuff that's involved. And it's tough, of course, if you want to have a social life or yeah. family or other things, yeah. you have to you have to make choices about how you go about this and yeah. this industry. But yeah. Xavier, what's next for you? What do you can you say what you're working on next? Do you have a hope of what you're doing? Are you coming back to the US? Are you staying in Europe? What, what's next for you? Actually, right now, I'm in the US. I'm in Los Angeles, ah. probably like you. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure, but yeah, I really like LA and uh, always a lot of stuff happening. And this is a strike right now. So this is a bit slow, but this is a good opportunity to make some uh, camera and lens tests. So I'm doing that a lot. Uh, I've been to camera division, bokeh rental, or I've been with Typhon testing new filters, lenses, many, many things. This is a great time to do that also to make some meetings and interviews. So I've done most interviews for probably for project for series happening in Europe right now, because this is, this is, as we say, this is a bit slow in the, in Los Angeles. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I can't tell uh, which one is going to happen, but I did a couple of interviews for series happening in, um, in Europe. Well, that's great. You can work multiple places. Not everybody can do that. Yeah, you know, actually, when work slows down, it always feels like there's sort of some other things that pick up when the industry and I know everyone is sort of like on edge a little bit because the strike uh, will affect the livelihoods of a lot of people. I will invite you to come by our shop. If you come by Hot Rod Cameras, we have a big event the day after Cine Gear. We call it Cine Beer, okay. and uh, you'll never guess what the theme is, but we really, <laughs> we, yeah, we, we have beer and we have drawings. We give away some gear and there's a bunch of different companies and stuff there. But if you're in Los Angeles on June 4th, we do it every year and Cine Beer is a, is a great event. So please come. I'll oh, be yeah. there and uh, you and I will get to meet in person. Oh, great, and get great. To hang out a yeah, bit, yeah, so. I will do. Great. So I guess it'll be a, a period of education and who knows what for what's happening. I think that everyone's kind of like waiting to see what happens now over the next uh, couple of months. But uh, look, uh, Xavier, I'm going to be watching your your career with interest. I love the stuff that I saw. I watched a bunch of your commercials and stuff, too, on your website. Tell people who are listening to this podcast right now where they can find you if they want to see more of your work. They can find me on my website, XavierDorion.com, you know, if you want to see my work and uh, you can see yes, my I, work. Yeah. I, I didn't find you on Instagram, so I assume you don't do any other sort of social media. Reach out to you through your, your oh, website. If no, you no, I touch. do a lot, actually. I'm on Instagram. Oh, really? So you can watch my work. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And ah, I'm also on right. TikTok, you know. 
<laughs> I, you're on TikTok. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, give people give give people your TikTok, your Instagram, because when I checked my Instagram uh, from the link on the bottom of your website, it was broken. I didn't go anywhere. Mm. So check the bottom of your website. Make sure that that that, that works. Okay. Interesting. Uh, I will. Yeah. I will check it. Yeah, thank yeah, you for this. I don't, I don't want people to be missing you. So. Yeah, yeah. I will. Really, okay. Uh, we'll put that in our in our show notes over at Cam Noir. If you go to Cam Noir and find this episode, we're going to have all the links to Xavier's social media and his website on there. So, Xavier, this is wonderful. I'm so glad that you had a few minutes to, to chat with us. Thanks so much for coming on the show, and I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you. I appreciate it. So that was Xavier Dolianz. Uh, thanks so much for being on the show. It's so much fun to watch your work on Mrs. Davis. And uh, I hope that we get to meet up when uh, we're next both in Los Angeles. That was great. All right. And now, short ends. So, Ben, it is our obsession of the week time. Uh, it's our short end portion. What is your obsession this week? What are you all about? To nobody's surprise, it's a podcast. <laughs> it's a podcast uh, by a guy named Brian Brushwood, who was the the main mind behind Scam School, which I think is a big YouTube channel. So he has a podcast that's on its third season now called World's Greatest Con. Mm. So it's about cons and historical stuff. Uh, this one in particular is a story that I have always been like, why did why has no one made a movie out of this? So if you're listening to the sound of my voice and you're interested in making a movie about a great true life story, check out World's Greatest Con Season 3 about Project Alpha. What is Project Alpha, you might ask? Hmm. So What is Project Alpha? <laughs> in the 1970s, there was a university that had a paranormal investigation program. Hmm. And think back to that time, Yuri Geller, spoon bending, lots of people believed in sure. mediums. A lot of the events of the men who stare at goats stuff happening right around this time. And um, this college is really digging into whether paranormal abilities work and can we foster them. And James Randi, who is one of my heroes... James Randi, who is uh, the magician known as the Amazing Randi, the man who introduced Penn and Teller to one another, was also a huge noted skeptic. And he kept reaching out to them and saying, like, you need to make sure no one's committing fraud. You need someone who, who could spot if they were doing like stage magic instead of paranormal stuff. And they're like, we're scientists. We have it under control. And, you know, basically these are all very smart, educated people who are applying the scientific method, but they are not checking for fraud. Right around that time, two kids reach out to them to be tested, and they are both consulting, unbeknownst to the school, with James Randi. It was not his idea. He did not recruit them. They were both 17 years old, I think, at the time. One of them grows up to be a very noteworthy mentalist who's still working today named Banachek, and they infiltrated the school they were tested for years. They would like go to these people's houses and have Thanksgiving dinner with them. They got to know them. And when they started, James Randi basically said two rules. I will help you under two conditions. One, when this is over, you have to tell them what you did. Hmm. You can't let them think that you're, you have psychic abilities. And number two, if they ever ask, are you doing stage magic? You have to tell them. And no one ever asked. <laughs> And it's just a, a phenomenal, phenomenal story. And I've heard Randy talk about it. This is more from the point of view of the two kids. And it's really great. Brian Brushwood himself is a magician, so he's kind of coming at it a little bit from that point of view. But it's a really fun podcast. Also, side note, there's a great uh, documentary about James Randy called An Honest Liar. 
that I think is on Netflix. That's just a brilliant, brilliant documentary. But anyway, I think it's a really cool podcast. And and again, uh, if you're looking for a good story, check it out. World's Greatest Con season three. All right. So Ilya, what, what is your obsession of the week? Well, every once in a while, uh, I get an email from my film school. I went to San Francisco State University. It's not a uh, what I would have considered a very prestigious school, but they they hit me up for money because oh they said oh you graduated from school you should you should give some money to the school and I got to say that was not particularly impressed with my time at San Francisco State. It was not a well ranked or regarded school. It was living off of a reputation probably from the seventies. But I think it's very interesting that in the last couple of years it started appearing on all these like, you know, best film schools in the country sort of lists, which uh, I was very surprised about because I would not have thought that the school that I went to was, well, was one of these best ofs. Although I did feel like it prepared you very much for the real world in that nobody would help you. No one could answer any <laughs> questions. You couldn't get any like, you know, uh, handouts or free gear or anything like that. Anything you really wanted to work for, you had to scrape and fight and wheel and deal. And in that regard, it produced people who did really, really well and people who completely washed out. And yeah, I'm sure there was, there's a whole spectrum there. But uh, I, I, I mean, I really wonder if you go to like the if you average film schools, maybe even 10 years out of school, what percentage, you know, like the people who went there, what percentage of them were still in the film business in any way? Because hmm. like I remember, you know, like when I went to UCF, there were only like 30 people in a class mm-hmm. each year. Yeah. And I, I remember actually counting. I, I don't know. It was a while ago. And it was like out of my class of 30, four of us were still doing anything related to the business. It, you know, I remember when uh, I think it was because of you, I went and spoke to one of those UCF classes that come out to Los Angeles and live like in Hollywood. And they go out and they, you know, meet people and get internships and do this whole thing like that did not exist at San Francisco State. San Francisco State was all about like experimental film and being proud of like a documentary. I mean, that's San Francisco that, film that was, scene. Yeah, exactly. Through and through. <laughs> totally like, was. I, I think it's gone now, but Film Arts Foundation and, you know. It's true. It was, to yeah. me, San Francisco. Well, wasn't it like uh, Fraser Bradshaw, who I believe was our third guest, said something about like, if you have ambition and talent, you go to New York. If you have no ambition but talent, you go to San Francisco. And if you have ambition and no talent, you go to L.A. And I yeah, was like, that's, hey, that's, now. That's that's, a, that's something that people in San Francisco like to tell themselves. That's that's absolutely yeah, yeah. How, how it goes. But anyway, I think it's interesting because uh, it started me down this rabbit hole of looking at, oh, what are these other lists? Because, like, you know, the Hollywood Reporter included it. And I was like, that's pretty prestigious. It was 2022. And then I saw the rap. They also named it in the top 50. There was like three or four different sort of lists here. So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe San Francisco State has come way up. But I got to say that. I was super impressed by UCF's program. I thought it blew San Francisco's away. UCF's program is nothing like what it was like when I was uh, there. I mean, like right now they have their own building and a studio and all kinds of stuff. When I was there, it was literally two portables. And what I was going to say is... I'm not exaggerating. UCF not on this list. There are some other colleges on this list, colleges that which are clients of Hot Rod Cameras, which buy their gear from us, and others that, that are not, and others that I know people who graduated from recently. And I have to say that... I think that this sort of list is something that might come out 
every once in a while when it's like a slow news day and they just need to, to recycle stuff from the past. And I don't know how much research is actually goes into this list so much as someone decided like, oh, where's a film school? Because there are some places listed here. And I'm like, yeah, I, I know what that program's like. That program is not doesn't deserve to be ranked. That, now, granted, the top five almost always seem to be the same places. It's like the AFIs, the USC's. Chapman, yeah. uh, NYU. NYU. Yes, they're, they're all there. But like Loyola Marymount, which is a totally, you know, serviceable, good, good program. That was number eight on two of these lists. And I was like, oh, OK, interesting. So uh, other other places to Columbia, which I, has always been quite good, has climbed up. Yeah. It's like number seven listed now. So it's like uh, and of course, as you, you might imagine, almost all of these top schools, Emerson College, really expensive to go to. This is like all these these places that are on here. Very, very expensive. You know, CalArts. These are these are not cheap places. Cal Arts, uh, yeah. from which I was rejected. Ooh. I applied and did not get into Cal Arts. <laughs> well, anyway, I think that the film school. Hub- I will have my revenge, Cal Arts. <laughs> uh, what I was going to say though is, I think that what's quite interesting about this is that the film schools still absolutely have their place, and even if AI shows up and you think displaces a bunch of people and there's this custom stuff and and the whole industry gets turned upside down. As we were talking about in our close focus, really, I think that there's always going to be the training ground for what comes next. And the first people who are going to be training that are going to be the film program. So as soon as there is technology, I'm already reading through this, that several of these top schools have installed LED walls and virtual stages. Every every single one of them is paying attention to the changes that are happening. And I think that uh, for most people out there, if you can afford film school, and that is the one thing that probably was really going for San Francisco State, it's probably the cheapest school on this list, (laughs) probably by far, least expensive, you know, top 50 top 30 school on here by far it seems like almost everything else here is like a private school with it's going to be six figures of debt for most people but san francisco state you can you can get out with uh five five figures i mean the thing is like we talk about film school a lot on here and is film school you know like where did you go to film school or is it valuable but i do think that if you're trying to have a career in filmmaking starting your life with six figures of debt just sounds like a horrifying thing i mean i it's really i started with sure four figures of debt because I went to UCF and and even that was kind of an onerous thing to deal with I I mean like I want to encourage people to go to film school I think film school has enormous value and I know people good friends of mine have gone to USC or AFI and have nothing but pleasant things to say about it even if they ended up in a world of debt as a result Um, I'd love to get Sam Esmail on the show I heard him tell his story he was two hundred thousand dollars in debt uh, before he ever got something that was really going to pay him any money. So good for him for getting there. But yeah, that's a that's a pretty deep hole to, to dig yourself to. Yeah, it just just feels if I mean, again, like I was under ten thousand dollars in debt and I and the only student loan I took out was to make my thesis film because at UCF they did not pay for your film. Well, um, you did better than but, me. I think I was about seventeen or eighteen thousand. But I also and, and, that, worked, and that's so, not yeah. that bad. You know, yeah. I mean. Yeah, these days, comparatively, yeah, I, I I know many people who are high, high five-figure debt. I just would yeah. hate to see people go that deep in and then come out and not have a... It's not a vocation. You're not going to trade school. Oh, no, you, you're well, not like, you know, a part of joining the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. You're not exactly, you know, immediately yeah. going to become a journeyman and be able to make, you know, a, a good return on your investment. It's the arts 
and uh, people love to call it a show business and there is a business aspect to it too, but really your chances of success are far more, far more the arts than it is the vocations. Yeah. I mean, so. depending on what you want to do, but like if you want to go be a grip, you, you don't, That's don't true. put yourself, don't put yourself in $200,000 worth of debt to get there. No, there, there's no, there's no reason to do that. There's other recourses. Anyway, so Ben, I think that's just about going to do it for this episode. Where can people find you if they want to track you down? Please find me at benrock.com. You find everything you need to know about me there, and uh, you can check out my reel. Find me on social media. Say hi. Uh, how about yourself, Ilya? Where can people find you? You can find me over at the sponsor of this program, Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. Uh, I regularly do uh, consulting for people who are building studios or just don't know what camera they need to buy or understand what sort of technology. You know, I, I worked on the team that invented the, the 4K digital cinema camera. I work a, a ton of different sort of uh, consulting consulting things, including tech committees for the ASC. And I help people on a regular basis, making sure that they get the gear that they need in the way that they need it for whatever they're doing. And it could be small things or big things. So I'm telling you all of this because it turns out uh, someone said to me, yeah, I've heard you on the podcast, but I don't really know what you do over there. So, uh, so I'm explaining what I do. I, I regularly talk to our clients, regularly talk to people and help them with their gear needs. And uh, my whole team does that. So at Hot Ride Cameras, there's a lot of people who are super competent and can absolutely absolutely help you know what you need. So reach out to me at Hot Red Cameras. Reach out to the team at Hot Red Cameras. There's a whole lot of people who can help you. Hey, uh, Ben, let's thank some people. Who do we have to thank this week? Uh, well, let's first thank Ben Katz. I don't think we made his life very easy this week with our rambling host raps. So uh, thank you, Ben. He's our editor. He makes us sound like not dopes. We should thank Kays Alatrachi, who composed and recorded every scrap of music that you heard on this entire episode. Check him out at musicbykays.com. And for Christ's sakes, uh, send him a message and say you like his music or something. Listen to some of his music. He's really great. He's got a lot of and, music. Uh, yeah. And sure. lastly, but never leastly, Alana Cody, who uh, has us burning the midnight oil, like literally tomorrow night after my son goes to sleep. I'm going to be conducting an interview with someone in New Zealand. Ooh. A very exciting interview with someone in New Zealand that I'm excited as all hell to talk to. You know, I actually don't know who it is, but I'm very excited that you're excited. I, I've got a couple of things coming up this week as well. So uh, she's got us dividing and conquering. To uh, I know. I, I did one this morning, too. Like we, the tank was running low from Sundance and, and uh, Alana just she's filling that tank up right now. I really, really wanted to be on that interview this morning. But uh, yeah, as you know, that, that was it was not meant to be. So I will. Uh, yeah, it's too bad. I, I hope it was a good interview. It was a great interview. She was awesome. So uh, that about does it. Ilya, you want to take us out? Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.